Well, it's a great privilege to be with you tonight for this baptism and confirmation. A normal practice of this church and this service is to go through parts of the Bible systematically. And by coincidence, we're coming to Mark 15 tonight. That passage is read to us. And Mark asked if I would speak on that, and it suits the occasion perfectly. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15 and thinking about that in the context of the baptism and confirmation. I want to start looking at one sentence from Mark 15 verse 24, where Mark records a simple, unadorned, simply stated historical moment, and it's this. And they crucified him. That's the moment. And they crucified him. The him, of course, is Jesus. By now, Jesus is the one that many have been following, disciples especially for three years. It's all come to a head here in Jerusalem, outside Jerusalem actually, and he's held up, held up on a cross and he's crucified. The them, well, we're not sure. It could be Pontius Pilate, it could be the chief priests and the elders of the law who brought the charges against Jesus, it could be the crowds who lost their collective mind and chanted that he would be crucified, we're not sure. But in the end, we come to this great historical moment and they crucified him. The first question I'm going to ask those who are going to be baptised and confirmed is this. Do you turn to Christ? That's a substantial question that they have to answer publicly where they profess their faith. And the Christ they turn to is the one who was crucified. You can't get around the fact that the Christ we speak about is the one who died, and not just any death, died a particular death on a cross, on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem. And so Jesus Christ crucified is a significant thing that we need to understand. So I want to simply do no more than unpack how Mark presents the crucifixion for us for Mark 15. Mark tells a story, if you know, follow Mark the, story, the gospel writer, and very straightforward, and they do this, and they do that, and immediately they do this, but here he slows down. He condenses a lot of information for us in a short little period of time. So things happen for three years, they come into Jerusalem, happens for a week. This is all a six-hour period where a lot is going on, and Mark records it all. He simply could have said, and they crucified him, full stop. But he does more than that. He gives us detail. Initially it was the insane shouting of the crowd who lost their collective mind outside Pontius Pilate's uh, barracks in, uh, early in the morning. And you imagine being part of a crowd that suddenly loses the plot and everyone's eating each other on. And this man that they want to get rid of, oh, let's crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they're yelling and screaming, because Pontius Pilate said, what am I going to do with this guy? And they bring it to a head. Let's crucify him. But of course, it was Pontius Pilate himself who was responsible. He had the judicial authority and he wimped out. If you know the creeds, we'll say a little while, suffered under Pontius Pilate. This is why we say that. 
Verse 15, we didn't read it, but I'll read it out for us. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. Barabbas was a murderous, treacherous, low life. They'd rather have him released than Jesus. And he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Here's the judicial authority coming down. This man will be crucified. And that's what happened. Not a surprise, you might say. It was a surprise in this way. Jesus had told his disciples many times, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'll be killed. I'm going to Jerusalem and I will die. What was not understood, however, this was not just a death by accident. This is death by crucifixion. This is death that's incomprehensible in their context. It's not possible the man we have followed that give our lives to, will die this sort of death. So I want to do three things in this outline of the sermon tonight. I want to look at what it means, first of all, of the shame of the cross. Second of all, I want to look at the triumph of the cross and then look what it means to confess Jesus, the Son of God, crucified. So there's the shame, the triumph and the confession all bent up together. And we'll find that the triumph is perceived through the shame. Unless we've got an understanding of the shame of the cross, we won't get an understanding of Mark's perception of what it means for Jesus to be crucified. So we've got the shame of the cross, the triumph of the cross, and confessing Jesus Christ crucified. And for those who have been baptised and confirmed, to follow Jesus still means you take up your cross and follow him. So we have more than a passing interest of what it might be to have Jesus crucified by the cross. So Mark tells everything in this, the shame of the cross, in a very concise, matter-of-fact way, as he normally does. Now I want to stop here and just say, before we look at this in detail, we're all familiar with it. And I want you to listen very carefully to this. Let the cumulative impact of the presentation hit you forcefully tonight. After Jesus was arrested, he was brought to Pontius Pilate. But as we find as the story goes, step by step, he is abandoned by everyone. The leaders of the very nation he was part of said, we want him no more. The chief priests and elders of the law want to get rid of him. The disciples disappear. The crowd chant, get rid of him, we want him dead. Even the rock of the group of disciples that followed him, who said he'd never, ever, ever give up on him, he left him. And so he's on his own as he faces this moment. His own people would rather have a murderous, savage rebel named Barabbas released, and so he's alone. Not lonely, I want to clarify that. We have a sort of an epidemic of loneliness in our society and it's interesting how social media has not helped our loneliness. But this is our loneliness. Everyone has gone. He's facing this moment by himself with no one else around. So let's turn to verses 16 to 20. 
Now alone, we find that he is mercilessly locked, uh, mocked by those around him. And the sense here is that this group around him are just fed up. They've got disdain and fury about this Jewish crowd, this imposter who claims to be a king, and they're just beside themselves. So the whole thing which you're familiar with, perhaps, they were told they put a purple robe, a purple cloth, a colour of royalty, um, they put a crown of thorns that you're familiar with, going to show you what sort of king he is, we'll put a thorn crown on him, they mock him by hailing king of the Jews, look how wicked, horrible you are, you're a nobody. They fall on their knees and pay homage to him. And basically the whole thing is to mock this pretender, this so-called king who they're just over the whole thing. That's the context we find. We turn to verses 21 to 22. The normal expectation is the person who's going to be crucified carries the beam which they'll be nailed to and then hoisted up on a, a, a sort of a thing that's standing on the uh, across on the beam uh, to the pole. But Jesus is unable to carry the beam which is normally expected. And we're in verses 1 and 21 22. A man from Cyrene, Simon, had to be asked to carry it. Clearly what had happened by then was that Jesus was unable to carry it. It had been battered and bloodied that he had nothing left even by then physically to carry it to outside Jerusalem, to the place of the skull called Golgotha. When they brought him to the place, we're told they brought to Jesus the place where he was there to be killed. Then verses 23 to 24. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. The wine mixed with myrrh was a strong narcotic which was used to deaden the pain. Take it. Make it easier for yourself, they're saying. The pain was going to be enormous, coursing through his body as he was hoisted up on the pole and hanging there for all to see. Jesus, of course, refuses to take hold of it. Why did he refuse, you wonder? Why not take the pain medication to get rid of it? Well, he's going to come as a suffering servant and needs to fulfil this voluntarily and completely and utterly in his right mind and he will do so to the end. It was only the traitors and scum of the earth that ended up on the cross. That's why it was so incomprehensible that Jesus ended up there. It was the murderous rebels. It was the nobodies of society that would end up on the cross. And those who were crucified were stripped of their clothes. You read that in verse 23, uh, 24, they divided his clothes up. And you hung with no everyone to see naked before everyone's eyes, hoisted up on a pole. And as you hang there, the weight would crush down in your body and the air would go out of your lungs. So the only way to cope with that was to press yourself up to get some air in your lungs. Then the muscles of your body would go into spasm because it's too much and you have to release. 
and the pain of the muscle spasm was more greater than the pain of trying to get air. And that process went on and on and on for hours while people watched you naked hanging there. That's why we read sometimes in other stories they tried to work out where they break the legs of the person to speed up the whole process. But Jesus actually died quickly. Verses 25 to 27. It was nine in the morning, so he's there six o'clock in front of Pontius Pilate. By nine he'd been crucified. And when he put him up on the pole, they put a big sign up. They're going to show everyone who this guy is. They're going to make a point. The written notes of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. This is a way to show up this group. Here is your king. Such a low life for such a nobody could be a king. Look where he is on this pole hanging naked before your eyes. How could this one possibly be your king? He's someone, no, he's nobody. In your face, they're saying, in your face, you think this man is somebody. Of course, the irony of all this is indeed is the king and his reign is commencing now as he dies on this cross and we'll come to that in a little while and the reign starts with two criminals on both sides as he dies in front of people. 29-32, the mocking reaches a crescendo. Those who pass by, remember, just hanging, you can't do anything. People watching you in agony, whole thing before them, naked. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you just hear the contempt, the fury. So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. They recall the things were said. Mark's telling of the story. These said were very. These things about the uh, temple were said very early in his ministry, and it came around everywhere he went. It was a big claim. He was going to destroy the temple, and of course, if he's on the cross, that's come to what? Nothing, seemingly. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him. Among themselves, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the disdain here is extraordinary. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come now from the cross that we may see and believe. And just to make it worse, everyone's in agony, but the criminals both sides have enough energy to mock him. And those crucified him with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus, you've made all these extravagant claims during your ministry life that's lasted three years. We've heard them all. And what are you going to do about them now? Show us. And so they're laughing at him. You think you're somebody? Clearly you're a nobody. Otherwise you would not be here. Of course what they don't see, if the temple was a place that people had access to God, Guess what's being fulfilled on the cross with Jesus himself? He's fulfilling the role of the temple by becoming the place where people do have access. So in the very death, he's fulfilling the prophecy you made back about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt in three days. 
This is a meeting place between God and people and his body on the cross is the temple born again. But I want to ask you a question, why didn't Jesus just save himself and show them up? He said before that he could get a legion of angels at any time to come down and deal with any situation. Why not bring them all down and show them up and show exactly who he was? Why not do that? If you're such a great saviour, save yourself. But of course he couldn't. The irony is, in, by not saving himself, he saved others. And the means by which others are saved is by him not saving himself. And more than that, do you really believe, even today, if Jesus was to come down from the cross and save himself, they would stop and believe? No, it will not happen. Only by God opening the eyes, not by asking some ridiculous sign, doesn't prove anything. Then we get to verse 33 to 37. A darkness, a foreboding, threatening darkness descends from midday. So he's been on the cross for three hours. At midday the darkness ascends. The darkness lasts for three hours when he dies. So he's about six hours on the cross, shorter than they expected. And the darkness ascends. And the dark, you know being to a place like a cave and you know the darkness sort of clings to you? that darkness that feels heavy, this is the darkness that ascends now. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some didn't understand what was going on. They tried to get thought he's calling out for Elijah. They've got to give some more narcotics because he's clearly lost his mind again. And we're told in verse 37, it comes to a crescendo. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. <coughs> when the darkness extends, Jesus musters breath for one last time before he dies. The words come from Psalm 22, our first Bible reading. Psalm 22, if you listen carefully, is about the abandonment experienced by someone who suffers innocently. And the reason we had the second part of the psalm read, and I think it plays out in the way Jesus, in his own mind, the innocent suffering is vindicated by being overturned at the end of the psalm. So here is Jesus coursing with pain, breathing his last, and what's on his mind? God's word. And what particular part of God's word? About the innocent suffering who will be vindicated finally after the suffering. And then he dies. The darkness also talks about the abandonment of God himself. Uh, we have a song and we sometimes sing here called about a father turning his face away. You remember that song, Father Turning His Face? This is about why is a father turning his face away? It's not for those who understand the Trinity. It's not the Trinity being broken up, but what Jesus is carrying here is the sins, not his own sins. What he's covering, carrying is the sins of us, sins of the world. Here he is the Saviour of the world taking upon himself the sins that we cannot carry. 
the means of our salvation is the sins and this darkness speaks of all that. And with a loud cry he breathes his last. So if you were there, what have you seen? What have you seen? The crowds losing their collective mind? Crucify him? The sort of spineless capitulation of Pilate trying to appease the group? You've seen the mocking and the scorn and the fury and the disdain of all sorts of people as they look at this particular person who's meant to be the king and saviour. You've seen the foreboding darkness descend. You've heard the loud cry at the very end and then you've seen him die. And you look up and what do you see? A naked, battered, lifeless man slumped over and he looks defeated. There's no victory here, is there? There's but failure. Nothing's been accomplished as you look up at this person who's meant to be a somebody. There is no triumph. It's interesting, we'll come to this in a little while, but for one person there, they came to the conclusion, this is no ordinary crucifixion. This is no ordinary crucifixion. So where is the triumph in all this? And the whole way that Mark tells the story is a very means that we see the triumph in and through the shame of the cross. There is strength in weakness. We see the weakness but there is strength. We see the shame but there is triumph. So what are things do we see? Uh, 16 verse 6, next slide. We see that death is not the last word. I want to jump to what we didn't read, but this is the vindication that he spoke about. And this is the word spoken to the women by an angel when they found the empty tomb. Verse 6 of chapter 16. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus Nazareth, Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. I find it interesting straight away to say, you're looking for the one who died, they make it very clear, if we're going to remember Jesus, not just he died, he was crucified. The one you, who was crucified is not here. Death has not taken him. Death is not last word. Vindication is him, his. But what do we also see? The king who reigns. Next one. The king who reigns from the cross. Let this Messiah, in verse 32, this king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe those who crucified him also hit insults on him. Here is the king whose reign begins now at the cross. He's always king, but this is his enthronement. We actually had this very thing this year. The king is king, but we have a moment of enthronement. But unlike the enthronement you saw where there was pageantry and all sorts of royal procession and fanfare, when this king was enthroned, all he's got is rebels on his side making insults at him. Here is, as Mark was recorded, the king who has come. 
This is the Saviour King, the Messiah, but this is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and his enthronement starts now as he hangs seemingly lifeless on a cross with no one around him at all. But now we can see the triumph that's occurred. And we see the Saviour who saves in verse 31. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. The cross is the way of salvation. That Jesus spoke of saving others is something that everyone knew. He came to save, it was clear. And this is why he came. He came voluntarily to give his life as a means of saving others. This is the way that he secures salvation now and all the way to the future. I was reading a book uh, a little while ago, a French philosopher. I don't normally brag about reaching French philosophers, but I will brag about this one, because he had a section about the fact that all various ideologies and philosophies are ultimately looking for some form of salvation in the world. He says salvation is a very common way of thinking about what people are trying to find in the world and there is different offers. And he said this about the Christian salvation in Jesus. He said, of all the salvations I can see in the world, the one that's most full and most complete and most compelling is the Christian one. But then he said, if only it was true. And we can say it was true. And it is the most compelling. It's about salvation now, all the way through eternity. And this is what is accomplished on the cross. And lastly, to complete the picture of what's the triumph here, we have access to God. In verse 39, the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom in two. The curtain temple could be the between the Gentile court and the Jewish court, but I think it's most likely in the Holy of Holies, uh, only entered to once a year by the chief priests on the Day of Atonement, torn apart, symbolising God opening up the access to him in a way that's triumphant because of the Saviour King, Jesus. So we have the shame of the cross, we have the triumph of the cross, and then we have the confession of the cross, and we turn to the centurion who saw it all before him in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely, surely this man was a son of God. The Roman centurion had seen it all unfold probably many times before. It wasn't if Jesus was the only one who's ever crucified. He'd seen them come and go, lots of crucifixions. I guess he'd been easily, but could have become hardened by all that occurred, become cynical, at numbness by familiarity. Ah, well, that wasn't the case. And I say that's the thing I want to be careful for us. Don't ever become numb by familiarity of what's being said here. Don't become numb by familiarity by what's been said here. But he's seen it. The trial, the mocking, the scorning, the beating, the darkness, the calling out with that last breath. He'd seen it all, 
and said, this is no ordinary crucifixion. Surely this man was the Son of God. Surely this man was the Son of God. Not confessing he became a Son of God, surely this man is the Son of God. The perfect Son who represents God the Father. If you want to know what God is like, this is the Son revealing Father to us so that we can see that in his death we have the clarity to understand the purpose of God, the nature of God, because Jesus shows us as the Son of God what it's like. Mark actually started his whole story in the Gospel with these words. He's going to tell us a Gospel. He says it's good news, very first verse of his whole story. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Here is the earth-shattering, impactful news that changed everything. And it comes to the man who was crucified on the cross as the Son of God. As the will of the Father, the Son he loved, should die this way because he loved us so much. And here is the solution for all that ails us in this world. There are many problems that face us, but ultimately they are found in Christ. And so we have this simple question in a little while, do you turn to Christ? And they say, I do. That is more profound and more impactful than you can ever imagine. Because the Saviour King who came, who laid down his life, is the one we turn to. I finish with this thought. It is actually true we're awash with all sorts of offer today about salvation. I came across this quote this week about the way to find salvation in someone's mind today. I'll read it for you. The way to find salvation today is to be your true self to be authentic and thrive. Being true to yourself means that you don't worry about pleasing other people. Living by someone else's standards or rules. You don't care what people think of you. You live as your natural self without compromise. This is a way you save yourself for the future. Does that sound at all familiar? There's no salvation there. There's entrapment. Jesus came to provide freeing futures through his death. And so we ask ourselves, are you in a position where you confess this one who died is no ordinary person? He is the Saviour, the King of Kings, who brings salvation to all who turn to him and freedoms found in him. That's what's going to happen with our confirmees and those are baptised in a while. I ask you not to become numb to that same thing and you consider where you might be in your own confession of Jesus, Son of God. And if you've got any questions and you want to understand that further, speak to Mark or Liam or anyone else who is here and work it out for yourself. There's nothing more important. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness to us in sending the Saviour to die for us. We do not understand the depth of what he accomplished on the cross. But pray, Father, as our eyes have been seeing it before us, but understand it completely for ourselves, and apprehend him as the one who is truly the Son of God. In his name we pray. Amen.